Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This is the 16th episode of season two, and we are stoked to be back on the air, bringing you another series of episodes this winter spring of 2021. In the first semester, we brought you a former teacher of the year, a Kamehameha Schools middle school expert, a published author, the founder of the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, and a mindfulness expert, among many other educators and education leaders. In the second semester of season two, we have an incredible lineup of guests, including a student entrepreneur, a passionate small school advocate, an award-winning history teacher, the former director of the Kauai Teacher Fellowship, and two Hawaii State Teacher Fellows, among other guests. Today, my guest is Jeannie Wilkes, who served as the interim head of Holy Nativity School from July 2019. After leading the school during the challenges of transition and COVID-19, the board appointed her permanent head of school. Wilkes holds an MED in private school leadership from the University of Hawaii and has been an independent school administrator since 2013. From the Holy Nativity website, we read that the school has a rich history of providing a personalized approach to learning in a small, intimate setting for students starting school as three-year-olds and continuing on through the sixth grade. Small classes, nurturing teachers, challenging curriculum, and integrated technology create the foundation that has continually encouraged outside achievements as Holy Nativity School students display the inherent pleasure of lifelong learning. And now, here's my conversation with Jeannie Wilkes. Jeannie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So before we get into the heavier stuff, um, I wanted to start with a couple lighter questions, Jeannie. So back in 2010, you spent time in the audio business as a project manager for the development of a studio here in Hawaii. Um, And as a geeky podcast host with a home studio that is that that really got my attention. Um, so you helped build a recording studio. Like, please explain to me what was that all about? <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, my husband is um, what is described as a serial entrepreneur, mm. um, but he was born and raised here in Hawaii, and as a young boy, was introduced to audio engineering and uh, interned at what is now Hawaii News Now Mm. at Dolphin Studios back in the day, and then moved to Los Angeles, worked for a time in recording there, and then 
moved back to Hawaii and wanted to build a really incredible quality studio so that kids wouldn't have to leave Hawaii if they wanted to continue in the music industry. And so he did. And so I helped him finish that up. Wow. So, so what was like, this was going to be an open studio for anybody who wanted to book time in it or? Yeah, it sure is. It's called Blue Planet Sound and um, it's on Waikamilo Road and it's still part of um, partnership with Hawaii News Now, sort Mm -hmm. of kind of an interesting um, scenario there. And um, yeah, he has a production company called Haku Collective and they um, produce and manage different local artists and record there. Mm, Wow, that's really cool. Um, You know, when I was first developing this podcast, I was actually doing it in a location. It was uh, Kamehameha School's um, innovation space in Mo'ili'ili called Halau Inana. Um, And I was using a room there, but then the pandemic hit and I was forced away from doing in-person interviews. So I had to sort of build this little home studio that I have here up behind Kalani High School. Um, So hopefully I'll be able to get back into the studio someday, but it's gotten pretty comfortable here. Um, And it's super easy, as you know, to do these episodes by just having people call in. So anyway, that was that was super interesting to me. And then you also have a Bachelor of Science in Food Science and Human Nutrition from UH Manoa. Like what originally prompted you to pursue that degree? Well, I'm fascinated with health and just kind of starting at the beginning of health. And so I was interested in how you can build health by what you put into your body. And so um, originally started there. And so over the years, um, what have you carried in your personal suitcase from that degree that continues to sort of impact your life or inform who you are and how you work with the world? That's a great question. Um, I think that I'm a, I'm a foundations kind of person where I like to keep things very simple, start at the beginning, start at the foundation and build from there. And I think that's carried through into even my philosophy about education. Um, and also, I mean, even with teaching and learning, it's, it's not really complicated. It's simple. It's just not easy. Kind of like eating healthy. Mm. It's not complicated. We know it's there. We know what to do. It's just, that it's not very easy to do it when someone hands you, you know, a brownie or something. Right. Right. Yeah. I, my original career, my first career, uh, many four decades ago was, um, as a chef, um, and I was trained in San Francisco. I'm born and raised here, but um, I was telling the previous guest that I interviewed, John Maderos, that um, that I took with me out of that eight year career a sort of lifelong sense of mise en place of uh, having yeah. your stuff together as a as a person who organizes a kitchen. Um, that's always stayed with me, although I, you know, I don't do anything fancy anymore. So I'm always intrigued by how things that you do in the past carry with you as you go forward into the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So one, one more fun stuff thing. Um, so back in October of last year, you executed what I found to be a really remarkable pandemic pivot related to Halloween and your Holy Nativity Pumpkin Festival. So, which by the way, was covered by a local TV station, which is where I found it. Um, so uh, what, what was that pivot and what did, what did your school do in that situation? Well, we were fortunate in that um, we have this amazing facility. Our campus um, shares four acres with the Church of the Holy Nativity. And part of that is our Osco Field, um, named for a beloved former PE teacher, Lonnie Osco. And we have this incredible space. And um, knowing that we couldn't have our few thousand families join us for our pumpkin festival, we um, caught wind of some drive-in movies that were happening in Kailua. I live in Kailua, so I I knew about these happening. And so we connected with the folks who were putting those on and decided to host drive-in movies, um, socially distanced and safe um, for families to come and 
at least be able to do something fun that's wholesome and a way to gather safely. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, um, like it was a real blast, actually, once you kind of got into it, yeah? Yes. In fact, we've carried it on. We'll be doing them again in the spring um, during our spring break just because they've been really well received, not just by you know, our families, but by families who really don't have a connection to Holy Nativity School and even our neighborhood neighbors who have come and mm-hmm. enjoyed the movies. Mm. I've been amazed over the last year, Jeannie, at, at, you know, just kind of paying attention to what's going on in our community and also paying special attention to what's happening in education, that time and again, you'd see these really remarkably innovative uh, moves that were made by schools and school communities and even individual educators and education leaders as they began to cope with, um, you know, what was happening during the lockdown. So I, I found it inspiring in in the midst of all the difficulty. There were remarkable things going on and people did very innovative things. Oh, yes. Agreed. Agreed completely. So, Jeannie, your resume's top shelf has a strengths list. And in that list, you note that you are strong in the area of communications, fiscal responsibility, and team building with an emphasis on social and emotional awareness. I want to focus for a minute on team building, which I've asked previous guests about, and I'm, I admittedly am super fascinated with this subject. Um, so what makes for a great team? You know, when a when a person sits back and says, we built a great team, what are they talking about? What's the process? I think the first is listening. I mean, leading is all about listening at the beginning um, and actually throughout. But really getting to know the members of your team that you're working with, understanding their motivation, um, getting down to their why and reminding them their why. And then pulling the commonalities. I mean, especially when we're all working together in an industry, in education together, there's so much that we have in common, even if we look at things differently or maybe even disagree on how we might execute a plan. Um, There's just so much in common. And so I think inspiring people to focus on the common threads and then just calling them to stretch a little bit out of their comfort zone. Uh, mm-hmm. Seems to work so far, so good. <laughs> so when you when you do that listening process, Jenny, do you like wh- do you do individual listening? Do you do group listening? I, I'm assuming you do both. Like, what's the balance? How do you how do you kind of organize that in your mind as you as you build your team and also all of the sub teams that you have at Holy Nativity? Yes, it's a lot of time. Um, the majority I would say is individual listening. And then as certain shared um, beliefs or, or concepts come together in groups, then I will group people in that way. So it's not necessarily by grade level cohort or department cohort or anything like that. I actually really like to mix things up just in terms of people's worldview and perspective. That's the piece that I like to have kind of in common. Um, but the different perspectives from which they look at the same subject is is where the variability is. But mm-hmm. it is. It's very time consuming. But I'm very intentional about um, ensuring that I have one on one time at least twice a year with everyone, which is it still doesn't sound like much, but it's a lot to fit in. Um, and then I have always had and will always have an open door policy. So unless the door is closed because I'm already with someone, mm-hmm. you can come in and ask me if I have time. The answer will always be yes. Did your did the pandemic year change that formula for you as you initially, I'm sure your school had to go into lockdown like everybody else did? Like, how, how did it work during the pandemic in terms of that one-on-one time and the group time? What were the dynamics there? It was tough. It was really tough. There were several decision points that I couldn't use my normal format, which would have typically been, you know, check in with a few people, get input. I really do like to have distributive leadership, Um, but it's so efficient to just make a decision and move forward. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately that took 
precedence throughout much of the pandemic was I could tap into a few people and then I just had to make a call. Um, but we did continue our faculty meetings on Zoom. And then I did just reach out on occasion. I'll, I'll have a handful of folks that I purposefully reach out to just by text, just to check in. How are you doing? How's the family? How can I support you? Mm-hmm. And just providing those opportunities for people to be able to respond really mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, you know, back to your resume for a second. The previous guest uh, that I had um, this past week, um, John Medeiros, he's a teacher on Kauai. Um, on the top of his resume, he starts with a skills list. And on the top shelf of your resume, you have a strengths list. So I know this might seem like an out-of-left-field question, but <laughs> what, do you, what do you see are the differences between um, you know, a set of strengths and a set of skills? Well, that's a really good question. I think, I think skills are a little less, um, and not to take away from your previous guest in any, in any way, but the reason that I would call, um, call them strengths are that I guess I could say that I, I see strengths as something that you can count on. Mm-hmm. It's not just it's not just proficient, but maybe at least as far as as can be measured, um, really just an incredible proficiency plus, if you will. I guess I really can't clarify that so much. Mm. I'm just thinking a lot about this emerging conversation over the last decade plus about how we evaluate um, kids work and who they are and and what they can do and what they know um, and that we're starting to distinguish between things like skills and strengths and it, it had never occurred to me before until I saw that you know at the top of your resume and I thought hmm like what's the difference between a skill and a strength mm. um, and I and I hear you when you're talking about something that's maybe a little bit more like character around strengths it's a permanence whereas skills yeah. are maybe a little bit more fluid because you're constantly developing and changing them according to yeah. what you're doing. Right. So, you know, Jeannie, somebody who knows you really well describes you um, as, and I, I don't mean to make you abashed here, it's just a springboard to a question, but um, describes you as, as grounded in your beliefs, um, a hold your ground kind of confident, but humble, gently persistent, <laughs> an optimist and possessed of the ability to trust and empower. So many folks on their leadership journey listen to these episodes, thankfully. Um, And looking down on yourself from the 10,000 foot level, talk to us about how you came to have these qualities and ways of being like what, what was already you and what have you had to build over time? Wow. That is, <laughs> that is an amazing thing to hear. Um, I will say, and, and, you know, pretty accurate. <laughs> um, I'll say, first of all, my mother did an incredible job, um, being very honest with me very early in my life, mm-hmm. um, and trusting me that I could handle that. And, um, I'm the youngest of four. So I have all the confidence of, you know, my, my mom plus my siblings pouring into me. Mm. Um, but my mom has been very clear and even to this day would say, you know, I raised this one to survive. So I think, you know, as a, as a parent in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I think she was, um, you know, a good girl, a good mom and did all the right things. But I came along so much later than my siblings as she had realized, you know, gosh, that, you know, that just teaching kids to conform all the time doesn't really work. Mm. Um, so I credit her first and foremost. And then honestly, I had an amazing experience in growing up in Wyoming in public school and wow. fantastic teachers. I had lots of input. Um, and I'm pretty competitive. So I like to, I like to win. I like to be first. I like to be the president of whatever. Um, and then I do, I have a very deep and completely grounded faith that is just a gift 
mm-hmm. that I wish I could say I did something to deserve. I absolutely did not. It's just been a gift. I have a really mm. grounded faith. Mm-hmm. And and how did your time in your private school leadership master's program also help shape who you have become as a leader and are becoming? That, that's been amazing. That was an incredible cohort of learners. And as you know, a great group of teachers that I think I just sat in awe through nearly every single class, learning from them, all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really, it was designed in such a way that it, it was a genuine safe space for everyone. It was a very diverse group. We had people from uh, from the mainland, from local areas. It was just an incredible group of people. And we were all very, very different with very different perspectives and worldviews. And we were all respected and respected each other and learned and grew together. It mm. was it was pretty amazing, actually. And what's striking to me, Jeannie, is that you're talking about learning from your fellow learners. Um, you didn't say I had a series. I'm sure you did, but I, you didn't say I had a series of fantastic, you know, um, professors or individual teachers. It sounds like what you really took away from that experience was the collegiality of being with other learners. Indeed, indeed. So, and by the way, I, I totally hear you about being the youngest. Uh, I'm the youngest of seven. Um, and, and my mother was a saint, in my opinion, um, for having raised uh, six boys and one girl. Um, and I remember that she must have reached a point of exhaustion in terms of parenting. And by the time I had sort of grown into teenagehood and I think she just sort of handed me the keys to the car and said I'm exhausted you have to make your own way in the world um which was you know pretty funny and I'm sure it informed my life right so anyway that's cool yes. so yes. um let's tackle the concept of small schools um including small faith-based schools which is something you you care deeply about um, you shared with me an article from Honolulu Civil Beat about the closure of a small Catholic school, St. Anne's, on the windward side of Oahu. And I grew up in Kaneohe, so um, I we were, as a family, well aware of St. Anne's. Um, and I also noted the, the closure of the school. So what was it in that story, Jeannie, that moved you? Like, where does your interest and focus on small schools come from? Well, I think I'm a fan of small environments anyway. Um, You know, even in large schools, they're always building small cohorts, small groups, small study groups. Um, But I just, and and frankly, in COVID, it's been a huge perk to be a small school. We've been able to pivot very quickly and serve all of our um, students and families that way. But I will say, I think from that story, what I really took away was um, the author was a not a student of St. Anne's, but a former student of another small school that also closed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and Lutheran. here he, mm-hmm. yeah, and here he was sharing his story about how he perhaps was not the easiest student to have in a school, but because of these small schools, people leaned in and really invested in him, and uh, he felt a kinship for other kids who need those kinds of small environments. Now that can be for behavior, that can be for learning, that can be for, you know, going through different family issues, any of those things. But I, I would argue that everyone does better in a small environment because of not just the relationships and the almost inability to find a crack to fall through, but that you're always accountable in a small environment. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows who you are. They know what you're dealing with. And you, you know, yes, you get some grace where needed, but you also don't get a free pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that that's what gives kids, especially kids who are struggling behaviorally or academically. I think that's what gives them hope to believe that they can do or be better if they're being regularly called to do or be better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. I know this might sound a bit contrived, but let's say that I'm the principal of a larger public elementary school and you and I, we're friends, um, we're out for a walk. Um, and I, I mentioned to you that I'm thinking about the idea of actually breaking up my school into a series of smaller schools. Like, what what is your initial reaction 
in that moment? What do you, what would you be thinking about? Oh my gosh. I think that's a great idea. I, I think if you're able to find a handful of, you know, vice principles, if you will, that you can completely trust that, you know, that you can, you don't have to pay attention to every inch or moment of their work that you know, their values and their belief. And by values, I really just mean their why their purpose in being in education so that Mm -hmm. it's truly for the betterment and growth of students. If you know, you can give those folks autonomy you know, set up the fence, if you will, and let them roam freely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the best case of any kind of leading and creating little micro small groups. What What would you imagine to be the process if if I were that public school principal and I I actually went down that road? Like, what am I looking at in the days and weeks and months ahead in terms of? separating into these small schools? Like what would you imagine it would look and sound and feel like? Well, it wouldn't be skill-based. It would probably be um, a variety of ages, skills, and abilities. There's so much richness when children have to learn with all different kinds of learners. Um, and, And not just the academic richness, the empathy and the patience and the pride that comes from showing someone else how to do something, Mm. especially when it's a peer, that's really a gift to give to other students. Um, But I would have it be just a mini, you know, same idea as a, as a public school that's there, but just broken into different smaller groups of the same mix. So maybe one grade level, um, one class per grade level and break it out you know, K through six or K through eight that way. Mm. And and let's say that if one of my vice principals was interested in sort of an arts infused small school within the school and another principal, vice principal was interested in more of a STEM based innovation type uh, small school, how would you feel about that kind of emerging? Oh, that would be super exciting. And I would make them double down and share. So it would be, you know, maybe swapping out time with each of those schools, because it's not when we have schools that just specialize in that way, then there's this false economy that happens where parents who are attracted to that particular subject, let's say it's STEM, Mm -hmm. they all want to pour their children into that school. And that's Mm -hmm. maybe not the area their child is going to grow and flourish in. Mm -hmm. But to capitalize on both of those principles' passions mm-hmm. and to be able to share that across those schools, that's mm. kind of my yeah. – this sounds really fun, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. This is yeah. a great idea. <laughs> no, I, I, I remember, you know, obviously this podcast is inspired by Ted Dintersmith's book, What School Could Be. And on, on one of Ted's 12 visits to Hawaii, I took him to Maui and we visited um, a school – on Maui called Pumaikai, um, and, it, and it's about 800 um, students in an, a relatively new elementary school. And they had made the shared leadership decision to be an arts-infused school. So that meant that across all quote-unquote subject areas, um, um, arts expression was brought into you know the culture of the school. And we saw some pretty remarkable things. I, I recall um, we visited one class where these young students, I think there were fourth graders, were working on the periodic, the table of periodic um, elements, right? Um, and they were doing it in theater. They were acting out the elements. Um, each element had a, having a different sort of piece of theater that was, you know, stitched together. And I'd never seen anything like that. And I thought, wow, that would be amazing, you know. But to your point, if these individual schools are talking to each other, uh, schools within the schools and sharing with each other, that makes the whole thing even more powerful, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, back to my thoughts about, you know, thinking about foundations I am not necessarily a fan of kids specializing really early. Mm-hmm. I think our job as educators is to give them lots of exposure and lots of experiences such that when their natural inclinations start to emerge, mm. that yes, they can select on their own, I would hope, um, 
mm-hmm. areas of focus as they grow and develop. But I just feel like it's too exclusive, especially, you know, I'm, I'm in elementary school, so that's where my mind is. I mean, at elementary, there's so much to share and um, ignite in children that I, you know, I, I almost shy away from the notion of having a focus in an elementary or early program mm-hmm. of one area, even though, like you said, that was a great example of the periodic table of the elements, which is a science based learning and then expressing it in dramatic fashion. That's great. But I would still just be a little nervous about mm. having a particular focus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, super interesting. So I, I'm going to quote the private school guide in Honolulu Magazine. Um, Parochial schools are operated by or supported by a particular church or religious denomination. In broad usage, these schools embrace a religious affiliation and offer both secular and religious instruction in an environment guided by religious traditions and values. So, Jeannie, what is the value proposition offered by both secular and religious instruction? What, what, and well, I'll ask you a follow-up after that. Yeah. Sure. I think, I think any school that endeavors to teach children is, is as long as their motive is, is the right thing, which is the outcome for children to be greater knowledge and understanding. I think it's a great value. I'm obviously a huge fan of education and believe it's worth the investment. Um, I think a school that intentionally touches on spirituality is a more complete education. Mm. Not that a secular school can't do it. And there, you know, I, I appreciate character education and values education. Um, but even if it's a stepping off point, I think it's more completely clear to have a specific foundation or belief system that you're starting with. I'm not a fan of, of restrictive environments where you have to subscribe to this particular religion or sign off on this particular set of beliefs in order to be part of a school's community. I don't think that's helpful to anyone. It's certainly not winsome or attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe even if you just say, you know, you're, you're free to disagree, but here's our starting point. Here's the foundation from which we're going to teach these things. I think that's more clear than saying we're just going to have general values or character education because even as a young person I can remember being in school and thinking but based on what I mean Mm. where did you get that like how do you know that's a good versus a bad character quality Mm. Mm -hmm. so I feel like it's just more thorough if you will to say like yeah holy nativity we follow the Episcopal tradition, which is very broad and, and welcoming and inclusive, which is really, I think, kind of the ideal for education in a faith-based setting because it is attractive and winsome and inviting. Um, but it's okay within our context to say, I disagree with that. Mm-hmm. So having said that then, you know, I, I would be very curious to know, because I've been thinking a lot about this over the last couple of years in this work that I've been doing with Ted and around what school could be in something called the Innovation Playlist. Um, what, what is the profile of your graduates, if you will, your, your sixth graders who are transitioning out to middle school? Like, what is their what is their profile as learners, as humans? What is it that your school community is striving for them to be? and to know and to be able to do? What is their profile? Yeah, it's it's a tall order, mm. really. I think yeah. it is for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our, our goal, though, is to have someone who can um, articulate their own thoughts and understanding in a variety of different ways, you know, written and verbally and um, sharing in that way, but also that they are a confident learner who can advocate for themselves, who understands what kind of learner they are, um, understands their role in the world and responsibility as typically someone who's been given a lot. Um, If you're in independent education, one way or the other, it doesn't matter how you're here. 
you're being given a gift. Mm-hmm. And with that, then you have an expectation to go do good things in the world with it. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm super struck by the idea that you would want them to to leave Holy Nativity able to advocate for themselves. And if you translate that back into the learning environment, that means that they have to have opportunities over the years that they're with you to advocate for themselves. It's a it's a yes. practice, right? How does that yes. how does that happen? How does your school have that conversation so that it does become something that you do and not just something that you talk about? Yes, there's lots of opportunities. In particular, when when our students hit fifth and sixth grade, we're very clear about teaching them about learning and them grasping the understanding of what kind of learner they are. We don't prescribe that to them. We don't tell them what, you know, like, hey, you're this this mm-hmm. type of learner, you're, you're an auditory learner or a process learner or any of those things. But we, we teach them what that is. And then we go through discussion with them and help them kind of come to an understanding. Of course, we have an idea of what type, excuse me, of what learner they are, but we want them to recognize those characteristics in themselves. And then as they leave us and go on to larger receiver schools, that they are very clear about understanding what, what is the best way for them to learn. Mm. And mm-hmm. I, you know, Jeannie, there, it, it's been happening in every single episode. We get to this point where Josh starts to feel like he still has eligibility, let's say, in elementary school. I'm ready to come back. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You, it won't matter that there's a 63-year-old guy in, in with these kids. I just want to be back in it. And I say that because I, that never happened to me in public elementary school. Not that it was public or private, but I was. I recall no opportunity to look at myself and what kind of learner I was in formal schooling, not at that meta kind of level. That was something that I had to do as a person over the course of my life was to sort of try to figure that out on my own. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder what it would have been like for me had I had I had that in elementary school. Yeah, it's hard. It's a very hard practice for these kids because they're young. Mm-hmm. And because as a society, we attach I don't know, I guess emotion to some of those words, some of those kinds of learners or or those different things. We attach good and bad quality to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really part of, I guess, some of our not necessarily underground work, but some of our work with our students and families to say, no, there there's no perfect learner. There just isn't. Mm-hmm. And to understand the type of learner your child is will help them truly be successful as they move on. But it is, it's a very hard exercise. It's really mm-hmm. fraught with emotion and, um, and honesty. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Hey everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guests. Jeannie Wilkes is the head of school at Holy Nativity, a small independent school in East Oahu in Hawaii. So Jeannie, you mentioned to me your interest in teaching as a quote, sacred act and that there is potential for deep harm from a bad teacher. So I know we, it's hard to talk in the negative or, or, or looking at something like that, with the, um, but what makes teaching a sacred act and what are these harms that you speak of? Sure. Well, anybody who's spent any time talking with me on this subject has heard me get on a soapbox a little bit about this. So mm-hmm. Go for I it. apologize. <laughs> uh, I, I do. I think the the art of teaching another human being, it's, first of all, it's so intimate. We all know this. It's a very intimate interaction. And when we're teaching young people, we have what I believe to be a sacred responsibility to uh, shepherd that and care for these young people as they're growing and recognizing how vulnerable they are to say to their teacher, mm. I mean, it's a, it's a place of humility to be a learner. You have to say, I do not know. And you do know, and I need your help. So that's immediately the relationship starts in a place of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So teachers can take advantage of that in a number of ways inappropriately. And one of which is to kind of lord that authority over children. Mm. Um, 
And it's, it's very harmful and very damaging. And I would hope to say that one day I will, I will not be able to say, I think we all know a teacher or experienced a teacher in our lives that really was kind of on that power trip or um, appreciated their authority in a way that they shouldn't have and either experienced it personally or saw it in a fellow student that they were harmed by that. And I've always said, you know, if you're not an excellent teacher, go sell shoes. Because if you're bad at selling shoes, all you create is a blister. Mm. But if you're bad at teaching, you can really harm someone. You can you can make them think about themselves in ways that aren't true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that goes against the purpose for that child even being created. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's a sacred infraction. Mm. Right, right. I'm reminded of a very early guest that I had on this podcast um, back in season one, Stacy Kunihisa, who's the principal at Kunoilani Elementary School up in um, in the Eva Plain up there. And she brought something called Choose Love to her campus. Um, it was, you know, inspired by the um, young child who died um, in the horrific shooting of elementary school kids at Sandy Hook. Um, and out mm-hmm. of that came the Jesse, um, what's it, what was it, Jesse Lewis, I think it was, Choose Love program. And she and her faculty instituted it on campus, and it had a pretty dramatic impact on um, how everybody sort of worked together with the kids. I'm reminded of that when you're talking about everybody seeing the children as sacred objects themselves to be treated with with care and compassion. Mm. So you mentioned a book titled Seven Myths About Education by Daisy, and I hope I'm pronouncing her last name right, Christo, Christodulu. Um, <laughs> is that, did I get that right? <laughs> I, I hope close? so. Oh, okay. <laughs> I hope so. I have not been able to say it either. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting name. So while doing research about this book, um, prompted by, you know, your interest in it, I felt like I'd landed, you know, back in the great debates of my graduate school program and education foundations. Um, so it, it appears the central debate has to do with content versus skills. So yeah. I wanted to just take a few minutes to to get your reflection on that. And um, what are your thoughts about this debate, and and where do where do we go from here? Yeah, I I kind of land in the middle. I'm pretty much a middle of the road kind of gal, and especially on this one because it's definitely, at least as far as I've been able to research, experience, practice, that this is really a both and and not an either or. That it's it's both information acquisition you know, content and trying it out in a project and developing skills. So it, I guess I think of sometimes, you know, the argument with even just teaching reading, is it, you know, we give kids a bunch of content or are we breaking it out into these discrete skills? And I would say both. Uh, Comprehension is clearly impacted when you pull content, random content that children are not familiar with in any way and try and teach them reading. Yes, they can make sounds and and probably read a sentence, but the comprehension is difficult, extra difficult for them. So I really do see this as a, as a silly argument, but I can see how people's personal experiences would lead them to say, no, it's really content or know it's really skill. Mm -hmm. What are some examples at Holy Nativity where you feel like you found the balance between the two? Oh man, I would say pretty much throughout the, Mm -hmm. the program here has been solid for quite some time before it predates me for sure. Uh, Our teachers are very thoughtful about the material, the resources that they choose. And I'll give you an example. One of our classrooms has a very rich classroom library. It's enormous. It's surprising for one classroom in a small school. But because of that, it's the the reading ability of each book, the skill level of each book is very broad. It, It ranges from two grade levels below to two grade levels ahead 
of this particular grade level. And so one of the things that the teacher, um, you know, she was teaching uh, American history, early American history. And so pulls out, had organized her library such that all the uh, early American history books were on highlight, if you will, in the classroom. And so they had a, a text or a, a novel they were reading together as a class. And then, of course, they had their um, history background. And then the, the, the classroom rule was you needed to choose two books from this early American history pile. And it could be any two books. It didn't matter. It could be mm. the very easy, simple book. It could be the very difficult, you know, almost an encyclopedia type book. It could be anything. You just had to read two more books on your own within early American history. And what that did is it created this feeding frenzy <laughs> with the kids. And the average, this still shocks me, the average number of books in this class that these kids read was 15. Wow. That's wild. Yeah, because they just had the opportunity to get all the content they wanted. So just even the opportunity to make the choice and the innate curiosity to read and learn just kicked in. Yes. Wow. And the, and the only requirement was it's on this subject. That's the, the little fence that she put around. It has to be on this subject because this is what we're studying in, mm -hmm. in history and social studies right now. But you can do, you know, any of the books. Right. And so what was interesting is as they started reading and learning more, they started sharing with each other and then trading books. And oh. saying, oh, this book is really all about <laughs> this section. Oh, wow, really? Mine was all about this. So, you know, she could have created, okay, read a book and do a report and do yeah. a presentation. Nothing wrong with that. Perfectly fine. But organically, these kids mm. were reading and reporting back on their knowledge to each other. And it just created this ridiculous feeding frenzy that's wow. really beautiful. That's amazing. That's, it's like they created a sort of trip advisor for themselves you know, to, <laughs> to rate yeah. and review these books. Like, you got to read this one. This one's, ah, it's only okay. Uh, yeah. 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 That's, that's what a great example. Um, awesome. So, hey, everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we'll come back with more questions for Jeannie Wilkes. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. My name is Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Today, we are with Jeannie Wilkes, the head of school at Holy Nativity School in East Oahu. So Jeannie, there's, there's nothing new about the hard, sometimes painful and difficult conversations about the purpose of school, especially for the little ones, the kiddos. 
And we've sort of talked about this, but I want to go a little bit deeper. Um, you and I both read a Medium uh, blog post in 2014 titled An Open Letter to My Son's Kindergarten Teacher uh, by a parent named Phil Kovacs. And I'm going to read the final paragraph of Kovacs' letter. Um, I quote, I think we can change the world's trajectory by raising inquisitive beings, and the place to start is in your classroom. Please let me know what I can do to support you this year. If I'm around too much, I'm too eager to help. Know that I'm just making sure that my boy and the boys and girls around him are getting the best education they can, where education means love of learning, not memorizing disassociated facts. One more thing, please. No worksheets. <laughs> so as a school leader with a kindergarten teacher, and this probably wouldn't happen at Holy Nativity anyway, but with a kindergarten teacher who has received this letter, what's your what's your take and what are the next steps? Oh, wow. What a great opportunity mm -hmm. to grow Agreed. and learn if you're not already on this page. And what an incredible ally and resource to tap into as a parent. Um, yeah, I think it, it is the heartbreak of the, you know, our theory of what we tell our children of what we say to them, right? We say, you're a wonderful individual, you know, don't ever lose your special sparkle. You're such a unique and different and unusual and special and separate being. And then we go to school and we say, get in line, conform, do everything everyone else is doing or you're not complying, you're not being good, you're not doing what we want you to do. And it's just this weird bait and switch that we do to kids really early. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's some understandable, you know, just practical reasonableness. We can't have five-year-olds and six-year-olds running amok all over the place because of safety, quite frankly, and they don't have the ability to make necessarily the wisest decisions, but I don't think we need to swing the pendulum as far as it has gone in terms of turning five and six-year-olds into, you know, mini undergrads, which is, of course, hyperbole, mm -hmm. but we really have this false understanding, or it's not even an understanding, it's, it's, we know it's not true. And yet the school that says, well, our kindergarten, you know, our students are reading and they have, you know, homework and yes, there are worksheets and they're doing all these things. Somehow it ignites something in us as parents and even sometimes as educators to say, oh, my goodness, we really better do that because that sounds advanced or higher order. And yet we know better. We know that children learn through play and we know they they continue to love to learn by play and discovery and joy. And so it's just this strange disconnect that we have, I think, by trying to turn education into all science and no art. And I don't mean that by subjects. I mean, we take away the, the fluidity that comes, the, the beauty of the art of learning and the art of teaching. Um, Sometimes I think of Mary Poppins. I mean, she's probably a little more regimented than I would like, <laughs> but but she certainly knew how to, you know, inspire joy and even let her wards know that she loved them. And yet there was an awful lot of learning being accomplished. But if you look at what she did with them, most of the time it looked like they were playing hooky. Mm. Um so somehow there's that magic of, yes, the nuts and bolts, the, the tasks before us of, of teaching. But there's a beauty and a fun and an art to it that we have to value as much as, uh, I even hate to say it, but test scores and mm -hmm. achievement measurements. Jeannie, do you worry sometimes, sorry, I, I, I generally don't ask close questions, but do you, <laughs> do you worry sometimes that your inquisitive, curious um, kiddos with the ability to advocate for themselves and, 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 and all kinds of other wonderful things about them, that they're, they're heading off to middle school and high school, um, leaving behind 
or or will be facing fewer and fewer opportunities to be curious or to to be inquisitive like does that worry you or do you feel like that's not really founded it's an unfounded worry uh i wish it was unfounded it does worry me it does worry me because i think at the risk of you know being a, a heretic I think if we were comfortable saying, you know what, go out there and get some C's, get some C's, <laughs> have some experiences. You know, I think if we could, as like a human race, just say, you know what, yeah. it's fine. Get some C's, you know, try out field hockey, try out drama, try out those things. They're going to take time. And you know what? You don't have enough time to do all those things and get straight A's. In fact, you shouldn't. That is so unhealthy and unwise. But we just can't stand it. We just can't be based in reality with ourselves, much less our children. Wow. But that, honestly, if we can really just get people to embrace <laughs> that, yeah. I think we'd have a lot healthier kids. Wow, Jeannie, that's some serious heresy you've just uttered there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, these episodes, know. <laughs> we don't edit them. That one's going to remain in there. Um, Great. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, in all seriousness, like, you know, I taught at La Pietra Holy School for Girls for eight years. And I remember because I had come from Punahou. Um, so it was a weirdly kind of ironic thing that I came from Punahou and taught at La Pietra. And almost immediately when I came on campus, I became aware that there was this ethos that La Pietra was a pass-through school to Punahou. And mm. it got me mad right away. I was like, no. And I kept trying to figure out why was I so upset about that idea? And I think over the eight years, I came to understand all the things that you and I've been talking about, about the wonderful intimacy of a smaller school and the mm -hmm. kinds of uh, things that you can do in that environment and the ways that you can get to know kids in that kind of environment. And so I began to quietly speak that heresy as well. It's like, no, you don't, you don't <laughs> need to go to Punahou. Stay here. This is the best possible place that you could be. Um, yeah. I, I hear you. It's a, it's a hard conversation. Um, and it, it it's a big national global conversation because of the way that education has been for a long time. So, so um, just kind of staying on the subject a little bit, you and I also read a, a 2019 post by Boston College professor Peter Gray titled Kindergarten Teachers Are Quitting and Here's Why. So this is kind of a riff on the same theme. The chief reason Gray cites is crushing mandates from above. And I quote Gray here, the excessive testing, dreary, dreary drill, and lack of opportunity for playful, creative, joyful activities. And Gray notes that teachers are calling this, and these are strong words, child abuse, and are, mm -hmm. are leaving the profession. So I realize this is kind of dicey weighing into this conversation from your position as at a small independent school. And because this article is really written about public schools, but what are your thoughts about how we can have this hard conversation going forward and, and, that, and ways that we can work towards no kindergarten teachers quitting public, private, or charter? What are your thoughts about that? Well, we have to stop listening to people who run businesses and have an industrial model that they overlay onto education. We have to stop. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, it doesn't work. And it's particularly challenging in a private school because it is also a business. So there's so many things that people bring to the table with that. But at the end of the day, children are not widgets. We do not have them on an assembly line and pass them from one worker to the next and then have a nicely finished product at the end. That's a great fantasy. Mm -hmm. But if we if we recognize children as human beings and not projects, it's an impossibility. I think we're on the road to it. I really do because we're starting to really appreciate diversity and not as a buzzword and a box we can check, but for diversity's sake and to see the value that difference brings. So I think we're on the road. I pray that it happens in my lifetime that I get to see it. We're certainly not there. Mm -hmm. But when we can genuinely celebrate differences and value them for all that they contribute to the society as a whole, I think we'll be less prone to that 
really it's an industrial model of education mm. and just looking for that uniformity that gosh why would we even want it in a human being mm. i mean that's not even interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, much less valuable for society right Right. What a marvelous thought. I, I've also been thinking the same thing that as as we really start to um, talk and act uh, around diversity here in this country, that the end result of that, as felt by our schools, is going to be not treating our kids as widgets. Um, and I've, I've also felt the same thing, Jeannie, about you know, the problem of racism that, uh, you know, as people intermingle with each other and and marry and um, form partnerships, partnerships with each other across every kind of ethnicity under the sun, um, that ultimately the whole point of racism sort of gets lost, which is a good thing, um, ultimately. Um, And so um, that's, that's awesome. And, And of course, seeking that kind of diversity within your student population is the key to that, of course, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And just the richness of it. I mean, that's, you know, if you think about, I mean, in any other arena of our lives, we do not want uniformity and sameness. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't even buy a car that's just one color. You know, I mean, there's nothing that we appreciate as just being one thing. Right. And and even the car that we're buying, you know, the parts are coming from 20 different places around the globe. Um, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, Jeannie, we've kind of come down to the end here. This is amazing. It's gone by so quickly. Um, <laughs> I, I want to end um, in a recent article in Honolulu Magazine, um, five schools, and this is part of the private school guide. It was the feature article. Five schools were cited for, quote, going the distance meaning student-centered pandemic pivots by educators that were creative and imaginative and innovative. Um, There were Mid-Pacific, Hawaii Preparatory Academy, Le Jardin Academy, and Parker School and Kamehameha Schools Maui were also mentioned. Um, So, Jeannie, had Honolulu Magazine approached you to be featured in this article um, as, let's say, the fourth school, what would you have wanted folks to know about Holy Nativity's educators and their pandemic pivots? Oh, wow, that would have been awesome. Um, I would share that our teachers gave up their spring break to have a crash course on remote learning Hmm. and using platforms that they were not familiar with, that they became expert in very quickly, like everyone else did. Hmm. Um, But truly, they had no break. They prepared materials to go home and we revamped lesson plans and had massive meetings to coordinate. And then they just blossomed. It's crazy. It's almost like, you know, we get to hold up the value of lifelong learning, but we really had to live it during COVID as teachers. We really had to be lifelong learners and learn all kinds of new things and redo things that perhaps some of our teachers had done Similarly, from year to year, Um, and I would just say uh, my second grade teacher (laughs) has this phrase that he gave us, which we literally chant. I'm flexible. I'm flexible. I'm so flexible. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So and, and so in your process of this past year, um, transitioning from interim head of school to permanent head of school, um, to what do you attribute for yourself, you know, the, the negotiation of this thing that you went through with your faculty? Hmm. I think I am privileged to work with a group of consummate professionals who absolutely love their students who put their students first, truly, this is not me exaggerating, truly put their students first each and every day and care very greatly about their student success and absolutely understand the sacred calling of teaching a child. Mm -hmm. And I think that what I heard from this person uh, who was talking about you earlier in the hour, um, I heard that a big part of this was the extent to which you trust your faculty. Yes. 
And, and that's a fantastic thing, speaking as a teacher, but never an administrator, being trusted by, by my school leader is maybe the number one thing that I could possibly want. Um, and that's very special. So Ginny Wilkes, thank you so much for this time today. This has been a blast. It's gone by really quickly. Um, and I wish you and your faculty and your school community the best of luck as we head into the rest of 2021. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, many, many listeners, for giving this podcast a 100% five-star rating. We appreciate you. And thank you times millions for all your wonderful written reviews. This podcast is inspired by the book, What School Could Be. Mark your calendars for the epic launch of whatschoolcouldbe.org and its community on March 9th at South by Southwest EDU. If you love these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders, please give us your own rating and write us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsandhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsinhawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Please stay safe, wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and get vaccinated when it is your turn. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. The gods only know how much we need both right now. See you soon.